Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the ASIAL Security Insider podcast. And today we are talking about cybersecurity, specifically cybersecurity in relation to uh, all of the madness that's going on in the Ukraine, uh, between the Ukraine and Russia at the moment. And our guest today is Phil Zongo. Phil is the CEO of the Cybersecurity Leadership Institute. Uh, Phil, welcome to the program. How are you? Yeah, thanks, John. Uh, Pleased to be here. I'm doing well. Excellent. So, Phil, can you tell us a little bit about your background and what exactly the Cyber Leadership Institute is? Okay, great. So I wear two, two hats. Number one, I work as a virtual CISO. So I pretty much help organizations in a consultancy kind of arrangement. I go in there, I understand their critical cybersecurity blind spots and then help them ramp up their cybersecurity transformation. Once they reach a desired level of maturity, I move on to the next client. So my role is pretty pretty intense and exciting. Um, On another note, I work as the CEO of the Cyber Leadership Institute, uh, which is an organization that trains aspiring chief information security officers So we started about two and a half, three years ago, but by now we have trained cyber leaders from more than 47 countries, including some of the world's iconic brands like HSBC, Nike, the US Air Force, uh, and quite a number of large organizations here in Australia, in Africa, uh, almost all over the world. So that's pretty much the side gig that's slowly becoming the main gig. Okay, well, that's uh, quite an impressive list of clients. Now, obviously, today we're we're talking about cybersecurity in the context of the conflict that's taking place in Ukraine between Russia and the Ukraine. And I guess a lot of people who are listening to this might sort of be thinking, well, we understand that cybersecurity is important in the context of everyday security, but what on earth does a, an invasion or a war on the other side of the world have to do with cybersecurity in Australia? Is it is is it possible for you to give us a bit of context to that? You know, can you tell us a little bit about the, the cybersecurity implications for Australian businesses as a result of this conflict and why? Okay, great question, John. I think it's better to lay up some context into. So in my book, uh, which is called The Five Anchors of Cyber Resilience, I do highlight that one of the major issues that we face as enterprises and and as nations uh, is obviously the absence of um, geopolitical consensus into how governments can come together to uh, solve. Uh, the critical matter of cybersecurity. And without that active engagement of uh, uh, influential politicians, the the prospect of um, uh, managing this threat is very very dim. So I think what then brings into context this Russia-Ukraine issue is obviously, uh, I think as we see more economic sanctions uh, tighten up around Russia, uh, we already knew that, you know, uh, I think back in 2016, uh, the president of uh, Russia by that time, you know, acknowledged that there were a lot of um, loosely affiliated cyber brigades that operated within Russia. 
um, in as much as they were not tied, formally tied to the Kremlin. Uh, they were doing very little to uh, manage that risk on a global level. So my prediction is as the economic sanctions tighten, we are going to see a heightened activity in uh, financially motivated cyber criminal activities because these individual, these groups and the economy at large needs to bring in Forex, foreign, uh, um, uh, you know, US dollars and cyber crime obviously becomes uh, a major source of income. So you shut them from SWIFT and other formal channels, but it's very difficult to shut them off from, from the darknet. Yeah. So my prediction is pretty simple. We are going to see a heightened um, activity in financially motivated cyber criminal activities, especially around, obviously, ransomware and the like. But yeah, I think that's where, that's where we are going. Okay. Well, that makes perfect sense, I guess, because I was sort of struggling at first to understand why a conflict between the Ukraine and Russia would potentially in a cyber world spill over to Australia. But if, as you say, it's going to be, you know, as money gets tight, they're going to look for every opportunity they possibly can to try and create income. That makes perfect sense. Um, so then in that context, what can not what can companies here in Australia be doing to try and protect themselves against those kinds of threats? Because we all know about ransomware. We, we know about phishing. We know about business email attacks and those sorts of things. But, but are we going to be seeing people doing things or trying things that we're not necessarily currently aware of? And if so, what? And what should we be looking out for and, and doing? Yeah, I think that's a brilliant question. But I think we have to go back to, to the basics. Obviously, we are going to see a new range of cyber arsenal being um, you know, uh, published, whether in the darknet or from these sophisticated cyber threat groups. Um, so I think they are, the risk is definitely twofold. Like I say, number one is you know, target those organizations that can pay you know, billions in terms of ransom or just go straight after financial services institutions. That's what we saw a few years ago uh, when some cyber criminal activities that were uh, linked back to North Korea uh, breached into the Bank of Bangladesh and um, uh, stole, I think, almost 100 million US dollars. Uh, and they were just stopped by mere luck. They were siphoning more than a billion US dollars. And exactly the same thing, I think that's what we are, we are going to see. But it's very important for people to understand that cyber, you know, a lot of these cyber criminal gangs or organizations or individuals, they follow the path of least resistance. So instead of all these knee-jerk reactions, organizations should go back to the grassroots and really understand what are the most plausible cyber risk scenarios that they face as organizations. Number one is always ransomware. And I think that's where we are going to see much more activity. So companies should start asking themselves really difficult questions. Do we have offline backups for our uh, you know, most important digital assets that we call crown jewels, assuming that those systems that underpin your competitive advantage, that support the products that customers value the most, if they are taken offline and you have no access and these criminal gangs are 
demanding hundreds of millions of dollars, whatever they demand? Do you have a fallback option? I know it sounds like I'm asking a basic question, but having worked with all these cyber leaders from multiple countries across industry verticals, what's really lacking in cybersecurity is the basics. You know, do you have obsolete infrastructure uh, that can no longer be patched to keep up with this fast evolving cyber threat landscape? Do you have offline backups? How often do you patch your critical systems? Do you have access to threat intelligence information? And I cannot emphasize this enough. I see a lot of CISOs make a strategic mistake of trying to build uh, 24 seven monitoring systems in-house. Uh, what I recommend now is to develop those partnerships with those global threat intelligence firms that have got the, you know, the depth and they can you know, manage this at scale. So that's what I'm doing, especially with my clients to develop partnerships with global threat intelligence firms so we can feed into our systems, our firewalls, and perimeter defenses 24-7, which we cannot do internally because we don't have access to that kind of skill set. So I would say, you know, go back to basics. Do you have systems that are exposed to the internet that don't have multi-factor authentication? Do you have traffic coming out of these countries um, where you don't do businesses with? So, you know, if you don't do business with customers in Ukraine, for example, why don't you geo geofence your, your network to prevent access from these high-risk areas. So I will go back to basic and ask those pinpointed questions to CISOs. Yeah. And something that came up in a conversation the other day that uh, another person mentioned was, you know, the insider threat within cybersecurity. And when we say the insider threat, I'm not necessarily speaking about employees within the organization doing something, but systems within the actual IT infrastructure of the organization, which might otherwise not necessarily be seen typically as a threat, being compromised and then being used to get into other parts of the IT system. And is anyone actually monitoring those systems for the internal communications that are like, hang on, why is our heating and ventilation system talking to our finance system. That's weird. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about that and how that works? Yeah, I think you raise another important point. So that's why, you know, in the previous point, I did highlight any effective cybersecurity strategy is centered on your uh, understanding what are your most important digital assets. And that's when we work with clients, we spend a lot of weeks, you know, working collaboratively with business leaders. This is not a cybersecurity issue. It's, you know, once you understand to say these are the most, you know, 12 or 20 most important digital assets, then what you need to do is then, you know, build a set of non-negotiable cybersecurity controls, which means you are, you are hardening access to those critical systems. Uh, so the problem that we see all the time is people are building all these networks that are flat, which treat these systems, you know, that are some of them very significant in terms of their implications if they're taken offline with some administrative system that doesn't really matter or some refrigeration system. They are all connected to one network segment. And like I said before, cyber criminals, they just follow the path of least resistance. Once you extend your attack surface like that, uh, they get in, you know, look back in 2013, you know, same old issues when Target, 
you know, one of the most respected organizations in the world. They were PCI certified, they had all these compliance seals, but they overlooked access to their system by one vendor who was connecting to their network for the purposes of submitting invoices. And then they lost, you know, 40 million plus payment card details. So coming back to your point, it's very important to understand what are those most important digital assets? Do we have segmented networks? Do we have people logging in remotely? Do we have jump boxes? Do we have privileged access management to manage, you know, those vendors that are logging in from remote locations, but with privileged access? So it's very important to understand that. But even more important to understand your supply chain. You know, all these organizations have got complex supply chains, vendors that have got remote access to the network. We need to start challenging that and say, do you really need access to the network for the purposes of submitting an invoice? If you really do, do you log into a segmented network and then we isolate these high-risk applications? So I think it's a very important point. Yeah. Now, one of the other things that we've been hearing a lot about is business email compromise, where it's not even as sophisticated as someone getting into the network through um, an external vendor or an external system. It might be something as simple as someone sets up a dummy email address and then copies a, a header and a footer off an invoice from that company and then sends a, a, an email to finance saying, you know, I am Phil Zongo, uh, you know, I'm the CEO of the Cyber Leadership Institute. I'm sending an email to finance at the Cyber Leadership Institute. And it's like, I need you to pay this bill for $10,000 immediately. Uh, and of course, people who are in finance don't necessarily uh, question things that are sent to them by the CEO, so they just act on them. I mean, what are some of the telltale signs that we can look for in these kinds of communications? And again, is it just a case of um, assume nothing is what it seems and check everything? Because that seems like it would slow down business a lot. Are there ways to deal with this sort of thing? Yeah, another great point. Um... It comes down to culture, John. And like you said, you know, culture is, um, you know, uh, I think the success or failure of any cybersecurity strategy hinges back, hinges on, you know, what is your culture? And in my experience, um, you know, collaborating with other cyber leaders, uh, business email compromises thrive in environments that are toxic in terms of culture, like if employees are afraid of questioning, you know, payment requests or email requests because they fear that, you know, their necks will be cut off, then, you know, these threats, they thrive. So it comes down to, you know, the most senior business leaders creating that environment of psychological safety where employees can openly question the legitimacy of requests. Even if they are coming from the CEO, there's nothing wrong in picking up a phone and challenging out of band communication. So there's a few things that companies can do to address this. Number one is just, you know, uh, educating your employees. But educating employees, what I see, you know, is a lot of companies are still stuck in the old school, you know, the compliance-based cybersecurity training modules, you know, that bore people to death. Uh, what, you know, leading CISOs are doing now is segmenting your employees according to their risk profiles. And you raise an important point. People who work in accounts payable who are effectively approving millions of dollars 
uh, out of the systems every month. We have got a dedicated cybersecurity training programs for them to say, this is how you assess the legitimacy of the email. This is how you have to call the client. If the amount is above this limit, you need to call them out of band and communicate with them. You need to understand the behaviors of your customers. So if someone calls and say, you know, I'm stuck in Hong Kong and I need money to uh, rescue me from this predicament and you understand the behaviors of your clients, you can easily tell this is out of the norm. And if something doesn't look right, you should challenge it. You should stop that payment request. So I think it's a combination of, you know, creating that organization of uh, psychological safety and then segmenting your employees according to their risk profiles. There's no one size fits all cybersecurity awareness program. Then after that, you need to complement that with technical controls. Like you've got payment systems that are exposed to the internet. You need to have uh, dual authorization. You need to have multi-factor authentication. You need to have detailed payment logs that are able to pick things that are out of, out, out of exception. So, I think it's a combination of, you know, people, processes, and technology working together to manage this risk. Okay. So something something I've been wondering for a while, and you may or may not be able to answer this, but, you know, a lot of these questions have come up in the context of the Russia-Ukraine conflict, and largely because Russia is seen as one of those states where there seems to be a lot of nefarious cyber activity why? Why does this stuff seem to be centered in Russia? Oh, okay. Yeah, that's uh yeah, that's an interesting question. I think, like I said, it comes back to um you know the the political atmosphere. Like I said, back in 2016, the president of Russia, Mr. Putin, publicly admitted that. There are organizations, you know, cyber criminal uh, organizations that are based in Russia, and they might be targeting companies or countries that have got tense relationship with this country. So I think, again, it comes down to the environment. When you create an environment that allows uh, cyber crime to thrive, it will thrive. You know, when people know that, you know, they can hit on all these, you know, Western best targets with impunity you know, the likelihood of someone being brought to justice if they engage in cyber criminal is almost, it's very, very, very remote. So I think it comes down to that. But if you track back again, you know, uh, it's, 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 it's a little bit difficult, but if you track back all the cyber crime in the former USSR, it goes back to the sanctions again. You know, when, when these countries were sanctioned because they couldn't access technology, they invested heavily in mathematics and science. And over time, all these people were very smart who knew how to you know, develop computer programs and there's economic need. I think that also feeds into that. So it's a, it's, it's, you know, it's a bit tricky to talk yeah. about uh, for obvious reasons, but I think if you dig deep, you can see that you know, there was an environment that allowed this to thrive over time. Okay. So then we get non-state actors like groups such as Anonymous declaring cyber war on Russia. From Australia's point of view, is that a good thing or a bad thing? Because it would seem to me that you run the risk of, because they're non-state actors, because they're 
a loosely affiliated group of individuals from all over the world who are participants yeah. in this anonymous group. If someone who's in anonymous but happens to be living in Australia look, takes pay, pay, sorry takes part in an attack against Russia and that's traced back to Australia, that's not necessarily a very good thing for us. Is that correct? Uh, you know, but um, I, I don't think it's neither here nor there because, yeah. like you say, these organizers, because of the democratization of the internet, these people are based everywhere. So yeah. I would say, you know, that's obviously something for politicians to worry about. But for businesses, you know, that's a risk beyond your control. Uh, what I would say in that is obviously um, we, you know, one other threat scenario that I didn't talk about that relates to this is all these DDoS attacks that could emanate from this, you know, either via revenge or so you just need to make sure that you could adequate, you know, um, controls around that. You know, do you have subscription to uh, manage DDoS attacks? or, you know, to insulate your systems from, yeah. But I think, you know, for businesses, I wouldn't go that far because that becomes, like I said, it's a, it's, it's, it's a big geopolitical issue. And yeah, I'll leave that to politicians. Yeah. But in that response, you raised a very interesting point because you talked about, you know, do you have subscriptions to services that would allow distributed denial of service attacks or DDoS attacks? Yeah. This dovetails into something else which I find fascinating in a lot of security environments because we run things like network area storage devices or video management systems that control CCTV cameras or maybe even backup systems and all the rest of it. And too often, people don't bother doing the simple things like changing admin usernames and passwords on these devices. Does it astound you that this still goes on? Oh, yeah, big time, <laughs> big yeah. time. And um, it's just rooted in, in human behavior. You know, people have got this tendency to believe that cybercrime happens next door. Mm. And I always tell people that, you know, it's like fitness. When you tell someone to stop eating Tim Tams, they will not stop until they get sick. Yeah. So unfortunately, this is what we see. That's why, you know, when we started this conversation, I went back to basics to say, Companies can worry about all these complex cyber attacks, but do they have multi-factor authentication? You know, a lot of Gmail accounts right now don't have MFA and people use G Gmail to send payment instructions to their financial planners and so forth. So my point is, you know, to your, anyway, to your point, there's a lot of basics that are, that are lacking. People are, companies are running uh, business critical applications that underpin billions of dollars of revenue in on infrastructure that's decades old and cannot be patched. So, which makes life very difficult for a lot of CISOs because, you know, this message just falls on deaf ears until something fundamentally happens um, either to the organization or very close to home. That's when the behaviors slowly start changing. But I think the biggest frustration for a lot of cyber leaders is, you know, the message doesn't, is not getting there yet. Well, I guess it comes down to the fact that too often, and we see this all the time in security, effective security is a balance between security and convenience. And you might have, uh, yeah. 
yeah. you might have a, a chief information security officer who puts in place all of the best cybersecurity frameworks. But if you've got members of the senior leadership team within the organization who say things like, oh, I'm not changing my password every 30 days, I can't be bothered. And the CSI or the, the chief information security officer has no real pull to force them to do so, then those people are creating vulnerabilities within the organization, correct? Oh, yeah, great. Yeah, you, you raise an excellent point. And that's why we uh, set up the Cyber Leadership Institute, because I think the problem is twofold. Number one is a lot of cyber leaders, uh, you know, cybersecurity and this CISO is very new. Um, a lot of organizations here in Australia don't have CISOs and it's a new domain. And a lot of cyber leaders, heads of cybersecurity and CISOs, they uh, they they rose from technical roles. They were network security engineers. They were systems administrators in the past. They were coders. And as they rose through the ranks, you know, that understanding of, you know, that balance between convenience and security, you know, uh, pitching or building cybersecurity as a business enabler and thinking beyond the compliance mandate is very important. So it's not just the business leaders themselves. It's a mindset that needs to change in both ways. So that's number one, to say, how can we create uh, cyber leaders who understand you know, the business value chain and use security as a business enabler, not as an inhibitor to innovation and customer convenience? On the other hand, like you said, I think here in Australia, a recent research I think there's less than 5% of CISOs who report to CEOs. So like I said, I think we are maybe five to 10 years away where CISOs will start gaining that organizational stature where they can challenge their peer executives. You know, if you are a CISO and your decisions to secure business critical systems is always vetoed uh, in favor of, uh, you know, convenience, then you feel like a glorified systems administrator and it's very hard for you to drive transformation if you don't have the authority. So I think the it's a very complex puzzle, but it's two ways. You know, us as cyber leaders, we also need to transform the way that we think and build cybersecurity to help the business. At the same time, business leaders also have to elevate that CISO role so they've got enough organizational stature to veto anything that's outside of the organizational risk profile. Okay. So, look, we're, we're coming to the end of our time, but just to sort of recap what we've discussed, you know, we're, and correct me along the way if I'm wrong on any of these things, but we are likely to see an increase in financially motivated cyber attacks over the next 12 months or so, as long as this conflict is continuing, as people in Russia feel that they need to do whatever they possibly can to try and get money into the country or try and get access to finances. And as a result of that, we we really need to understand what are your important digital assets, your, 12, your most important digital assets, and understand how you're securing them. You need to understand your supply chain and know who has access to your supply chain and how they access it and make sure that's secure. You need to be able to monitor the internal communications between your systems to try and detect if there's any systems talking to each other that are weird or suspicious that might indicate that there's activity. When it comes to business email compromise, really the organization needs a culture of openness and 
uh, I suppose, nurturing so that people feel comfortable questioning things like payment requests rather than being fearful of questioning them. And uh, yeah, and, and again, make sure you're allowing your chief information security officers and your cybersecurity team to do the kinds of things that the organization requires in order to make it safe rather than just relegating them to the back room. Excellent. Uh, I don't think I have much to add there. Fantastic. But just one, one yep. last point of reflection is obviously uh, the even if the conflict ends next month or next year, the implications are going to be long lasting. Um, you look back into the 419 scam, you know, the Nigerian prince 419 scam uh, started back, I think, back in 1995 when there were some economic hardships due to the dictatorships, I think, of Sania Bacha, of one of those dictators. And they had all these people who were highly educated, but they had no access to jobs. And that's how this threat started. And 30 years later, we are still dealing with the same threat. So what I want to manage here is expectations to say if the conflict ends next month or next year, we don't know. But the implications around cybersecurity are going to be long lasting because especially around financially motivated cyber criminal, cyber crime, because you know, all these people need to feed money into their coffers that are now empty. So we should really play the long game. That's why for me, it comes back to the basics. Understand what your critical blind spots are and then work together with the CISO and senior business leaders to make sure that, you know, you prioritize the remediation of your most important risks around your crown jewels. Fantastic. Well, Philip, thank you very much for, for talking to us today. If people want to find out more about the Cyber Leadership Institute, where do they go? Uh, they can check on my on my LinkedIn. And um, yeah, one thing I didn't, uh, on my LinkedIn, uh, they've got access to uh, our Cyber Leadership Institute. Everything is there. Uh, I also should just mention that I also uh, an ex-director. That's one of my role uh, with ISACA Sydney. Uh, here. So I do a lot of work with ISACA and there's a lot of resources they can get from the ISACA website in terms of cybersecurity best practices as well. Fantastic. Well, ladies and gentlemen, thank you once again for joining us. Uh, if you'd like to hear more podcasts in this series, you can find them on the ASIAL website at www.asial.com.au. You can find them at iTunes, Blurberry, Google Play, Spotify, and all the other great places that you find podcasts. And we look forward to uh, catching you on the next podcast. Thank you very much.